1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. On this episode of Rector's Cupboard, we welcome Rabbi Dr. Laura Duhan Kaplan. Rabbi Laura oversees an interreligious studies conference in Vancouver each year. 2021 is the second year that the conference has moved to taking place entirely online. This presents a great opportunity for more people to attend. This year's conference theme is Religion and Thoughtful Activism. Keynote speakers are Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute and frequent contributor on CBC and other news outlets. And there'll also be keynotes from the Roots Palestinian-Israeli Network. I'm privileged to be one of the seminar presenters at the conference this year and will be speaking from my evangelical background on the dangers of grievance posing as faith and how hopeful theology can lead to healing and solidarity, even across faith traditions. The conference takes place from Tuesday to Thursday, May 25th to 27th, and is open to anyone. You don't have to be an academic to attend and to get a lot out of it. You can register by going to vst.edu, and you'll find the conference under events. Seminar topics, I think there's over 40 seminars, and they include Courageous Activism Without Bullying with Sukhvinder Kar Vinning, A Theology of Fentanyl with Yehuda Mansell, and Old Age, The Paradox of Physical Decline and Spiritual Greatness with Barbara Matthews. You can, of course, choose what you want to attend and engage as much or as little as you'd like to and as your time allows. One of the gifts, actually, of this difficult and historic time that we're living through is that we have had the opportunity to participate in programs, attend sessions or classes that were not open to us before that demanded a great deal of time and money. This conference is one such opportunity. Religion and Thoughtful Activism, the Interreligious Conference at VST in May 2021. I think that you'll find the sessions and content will enliven your worldview. To register, follow the links that I mentioned, vst.edu under events. And uh, if you'd like to attend only the keynote addresses, you can do so free of charge. Again, you just need to sign up online. Welcome. We are very excited to welcome our guest, uh, Rabbi Dr. Laura Duhan Kaplan of Vancouver School of Theology. Uh, Rabbi Laura is the Director of Interreligious Studies and Professor of Jewish Studies um, at VST. She uh, holds degrees in philosophy, adult education, as well as a diploma from VST in spiritual direction. Uh, She is also an ordained rabbi published author of a bunch of books, uh, the most recent of which uh, is called The Multi-Species Mind of God, Animal Narratives in the Hebrew Bible, which just sounds so fascinating. (laughs) So um, welcome, Rabbi Laura. Thanks so much, Allison. I'm very excited to be here. This is a great podcast, and you guys are great interviewers. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I'd love just right off the bat to talk about your book, um, 
why you chose the topic, what was so intriguing about it. Like, can you tell us a bit about it, please? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first, I should say that the editor changed the title to something that he considers more fun, <laughs> and that's Mouth of the Donkey. Oh, that's right. And reimagining the Bible or reimagining biblical animals. I oh, think. Okay. We yeah. will make sure that we get the correct title in our notes for that. Yeah, it gives a less intellectual image and takes you right there to that embodied animal. Mm. Yeah, so in a way, it's a project that I worked on for 10 years. Wow. In another way, it's a project that I have been working on since I was a teenager. Yeah. In my journals as a teenager, I was very, or I don't know about very, I spent a lot of time exploring the question, why is it that in science and philosophy and religion, uh, there seems to be so much emphasis on talking about what is so special about human beings, mm -hmm. that only we have reason and only we think, when it was so incredibly obvious that that's not true. Hmm. And that's a question that has been in the back of my mind for many, many years. My mother was a dog rescuer, whole separate set of stories there. <laughs> um, my yeah. home became a home for any kind of pet or exotic pet that other people realized they were unable to care for. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so, 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 so learning, this is a big, like, long-term thing for you. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> learning, right, to interact with each different species hmm. on its own terms has been a big kind of lifelong project. Well, I, I picked that up in the, in the previous title, um, so Mouth of the Donkey, but the, the original, the working title, The Multi-Species Mind of God, um, that clearly for you, I'm anticipating there was something that you were considering what it means to interact with the transcendent, um, you know, in company with, with these animals that there is that, and it's such a fascinating thing. And there's such a long tradition of that in Christian history and otherwise, mm -hmm. right. That, um, so is now, I think we knew this from speaking with you on another podcast, but is the book out now? The book should be out by the end of 2021. Okay. Okay. So to come, coming soon. That's yes. Great. What was your favorite part about writing the book? In truth, my favorite part about writing the book was experiencing the experiences that found their way into it. Mm. So for example, I'll just give you one example because Perfect. this is exactly how the book opens. In 2010, my husband and I took a vacation to Nova Scotia, amazingly beautiful, so beautiful province. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, every day we experienced something new. And one day we were on the trail at Cape Breton National Park. And the moose there are very, very used to visitors. And they really hang out just a few feet from the trail and contemplate us <laughs> as we're <laughs> contemplating them. And we're walking along the trail and I'm listening to a conversation between a mother and a child who is maybe eight. And the mother's accent suggests that she's a tourist from the U.S. Bible Belt. Mm. Oh, yeah. And 
her son is asking her all these curious questions about nature and what is the self-awareness that a moose has and true story and she is trying her hardest to give her son answers that are kind of approved theologically but she knows that he's blowing it wide open. You know, the moose is a few feet away listening to us, right? Debate her nature. She's got, the moose is listening and her kind of, um, you know, uh, evangelical fundamentalist thing is listening too in her mind. For That's right. she's going to answer, yeah. Do you remember the answers? No. Oh, you must have them in the book. We'll have to read the book. You will. Yeah, Fantastic. Now, uh, another thing that, that you're, aside from, from being an author, you also uh, are on faculty at the Vancouver School of Theology, which is a theological school in the Christian tradition, um, but you work in, a, in an interfaith context. Uh, could you tell us how you came there, uh, a little bit about the school? Sure. I'll tell you how I came there, and then maybe... I'll talk a little bit about what it's like to work there mm-hmm. as a non-Christian. Yeah. Yes. How I came there was actually as a student. When I came to Canada at the end of 2004 to work as the rabbi of Or Shalom Synagogue, I had, of course, done all the approved preparation for pastoral care. Mm-hmm. But when I started, I felt a little bit as though I was missing Um, a kind of spiritual depth to my presence. Hmm. And it might have been that I was just inexperienced, but at the time I felt quite at sea. And I did some research and decided to study spiritual direction. Okay. Right. And at that time, BST had a program in spiritual direction. Now, my denomination also offered a program in spiritual direction, but I looked at it and I thought, you know, the faculty will be exactly the same faculty I studied with at seminary. The fellow students will probably be my colleagues and friends from seminary going back for further yeah. education. Um, I need to make some new friends and I need to have a different spiritual perspective. How about VST? Oh, that's great. <laughs> so that's how I came. And I'm wondering if I did talk about this on another podcast um, with you, Todd. Yeah, you probably did. Like how, so you were a student at VST, but now you're faculty for a number of years and how that happened. Yeah, so it's interesting. As a student, faculty were very, very, what is the right right word? Encouraging. Mm -hmm. And they allowed me to do a percentage of the work in my own tradition. And when you're a faculty member, you kind of see the school more as it is. And it turns out that's actually a very good thing and a positive vision, right? Because VST is an ecumenical Protestant school. So we have students from different Protestant denominations. We now have a few students from uh, the Catholic school. Mm -hmm. We have Unitarians who are studying for ministry. We have students of every tradition and no tradition who are studying for chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. So already it's a very open environment. And the kind of Christianity that 
um, the students and faculty mm -hmm. and everyone involved with BST is trying to live into is one that is not um, dragged through sort of the devastating mm. after effects mm. of right empire and political engagement. So they're trying to find ways to have Christianity without enemies and without uh, scapegoats. So well said. Yes. <laughs> I, I experienced the same thing that when you say without enemies and without scapegoats, it's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I know you do aside from, from teaching at VST is um, you organize an interfaith conference. And I know that there's one coming up in May. Register for that, all of our listeners. Uh, it will be very good. Um, how long has this conference been going on for? And specifically this, this year's conference, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. This will be our sixth annual interreligious studies conference. And each year we select a theme that is of contemporary interest, something that has come up in current events in the last year or two. And we create sort of a two and a half day think tank environment around that question. Hmm. So we'll have some keynote speakers who are very experienced in that question. We will have a practitioner panel We'll have some kind of integrative workshop. And around all that, we invite graduate students, faculty, academics to present bits of their research into that topic. Mm. And we have, on the one hand, a reliable cohort of academic presenters who, whatever the theme is, say, wow, this is perfect. I can't wait to look at this <laughs> from the perspective of the theology yeah. I've been studying. And also each year we attract um, a few people who, for whom this is their first contact with the VST community, but who want to be part of this think tank. And last year, and now this year, we're online. So being online has made it possible for us to attract participants not only across the USA, but this year we'll have some from Oman, Israel, um, India, and the UK. That's oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah, I was uh, attended and was part of the conference last year and, and, and really, really enjoyed it and benefited from it. But it brought up, it brings up something in my mind as we think about, like, as I think about my upbringing in the evangelical church, um, Allison was raised yes. in the evangelical church as well, that in that background one of the things that many people in the culture warned against was anything that had the word interreligious or interfaith connected with it there was kind of a you know mm -hmm. if you i don't know if it's true believer thing or something like if you're really going to believe christian faith well you those things are kind of watered down or something like that which is not my experience at all uh, of no. of what uh, of the conference but i uh, wondered about your kind of reflection on that have you seen this warning from other faith communities is it something that you've had to keep in mind or how have you experienced it well we absolutely have this worry in my home tradition and my jewish culture okay and some of the worry is that the interreligious idea is 
just kind of a front for other traditions wanting to lure you away from yours uh, into theirs. This sounds familiar. Right? Yes. And thus people who aren't who are grounded or young people will be drawn out of their family systems and out of their home cultures and networks into something else, which is something that um, most families don't want to see mm. happen. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big worry. And I do also think that some strands of not just Christianity, um, other traditions as well, but with um, evangelical Christianity being yeah. the context of the question, um, some traditions really, really insist on accessing God through their theology right. and their history and their symbols. And it's part of the theology that no other systems work. So if you have that kind of a theology, then you absolutely w would caution people against mm -hmm. dipping a toe mm -hmm. into the false theologies that lead to false gods. If you have a theology that says there is um, only one God who is known through many names, like some of the biblical prophets say, right then you would think, well, as long as you can stay close with your family and your yeah. home culture and tradition, by all means, you know, broaden your access to the divine. I think in the evangelical tradition, uh, my familiarity with it, and as a pastor for 25 years, and um, some of the roots of, of that particular culture that I experienced came from kind of the premillennial, like uh, end times stuff, where uh, what you're saying was all, is all valid as well, but there was this other added element of uh, the interreligious or interfaith or kind of world-reaching things are all really dangerous because they're like they mark this this uh, kind of other way of seeing things that is against like our our one truth, which reflects on what you're saying. We were a friend of mine, a uh, Ken Ken Bell was mm -hmm. an Anglican minister. He's a chaplain now, and when we were both uh, ministers and would do a lot of projects together around the time of the Quebec mosque shooting, we reached out to um, local Imam and, uh, and had some people from our churches connect with some people from, from, um, from their community. And then eventually we said to him, you know, we do these things called um, tasting room theology. That's yeah, it. That and, it. And we'd asked him if he'd be interested in, in being a speaker at one of these, just to talk about how faith communities of different faiths can relate well in the community. Um, and he really wanted to, but then, so this is speaking from his, his perspective. And he said, but I'm not, I, I don't think I can do it because I don't think our community, right, the, that his, his community, the mosque would be able to handle it. So it's something that as you say, is experienced across the board. And, and, uh, but one of the things that I loved about the conference was it was obvious that that was the, the approach was learning together mm -hmm. and wasn't asking anybody to be less of their particular tradition. Um, so this year's, uh, conference, as Allison was saying at the end of May, uh, the contemporary or the current tag that ha that it has is thoughtful activism, which what it, it how relevant is that for right now? Like every newspaper <laughs> article we read, everything we're doing, it's a fantastic term. Can you give us some of your reflections on the hopes and difficulties of activism in general right now? Why do you think this is a great topic? Um, thoughtful activism. Um, 
how does it matter right now? I think particularly in North America, and maybe not just in North America, but that's what I spend most of my time following in the news. Particularly in North America, two things have happened to really put activism mainstream in the news, right? One of them is the pandemic, so that people have turned away from some of the busyness of the usual routines and they have time to think more about what really matters. It's also exposed a lot of the fault lines in Mm -hmm. our society, particularly around um, economic inequality, um, also faults in the justice system as we Mm -hmm. see what is happening in prisons around the terrible um, mismanagement Mm -hmm. of COVID outbreaks and vaccinations there. And the other is of course the fledgling authoritarian regime that we had in the US Mm -hmm. um, for four years. Mm -hmm. So putting those two together, um, people have been really, really motivated and energized to show up together. And I'm a great fan of the US-based podcast, Gaslit Nation, Hmm. by Sarah Kenzier and Andrea Chalupa. Yes, write that down on your list. Just just one second. Gaslit Nation. Perfect. And one of the themes that they talk about over and over again in the podcast is our best power is grassroots power. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That is when people organize, show up in the streets, on the phone lines, build coalitions, are clear about goals and tactics, um, that power they hope and believe is a match for um, huge corporate and political forces right do, do you think that there's um like i love the term thoughtful activism i think it's it's something that you know as i say in, anytime you open the newspaper right now there's there's both there's, there's conversation and yep. debate around you know is this is this worthy activism or something um do you think i know this wasn't what you had in mind with the term thoughtful activism but it, could there be something considered thoughtless activism is there is there something that people are kind of worried about? Uh, oh, that that you know whether it's just click activism or something, or is 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 it all good? Like, is it like well, this is raising awareness, or this is is there a kind of activism that we should be not leery of, but considering? Well, on the one hand, Ruth Messenger, who used to be the executive director of American Jewish World Service. Um, Ruth Messenger says, um, every petition makes a difference. Hmm. So she doesn't think that there's any wasted activism. Still and all, um, some things are better than others. So Mm -hmm. I'll think particularly Mm -hmm. of two things, right? One is when it comes to spiritual communities and religious communities wanting to do activism, Um, Despite the fact that the term organized religion is thrown around a lot, we all know, right, that most 
spiritual communities in North America are really a ragtag group of volunteers <laughs> trying to live out their faith. <laughs> I know exactly. that's so well summarized. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that most communities want to do is they want to make a difference in the world, right? Compassion, feeling with, suffering with is something that they talk about and that they genuinely do, but they don't always have the guidance that they need in order to know who to ally with and how, or even to understand how there's a lot of different ways to contribute to activism. And some of them are just more effective for their community than others right. are. Yeah. You, so you mentioned that this year, it, cause I know last year it went online and you kind of had to adapt it, right? Because it wasn't planned as an online thing because things shut down like a year ago right now. Yeah. It's March 12th oh. today. Um, yes. and, and then you quickly adapted and did a really, really good job. Like the, the rooms were hosted, there were facilita facilitators and all this. It was, it was really well done, but this year you're, you're kind of more ready. You knew that it was going to be online. Um, what, and then you mentioned now that you have participants who are coming from all over the world. What are some of the things your, your biggest hopes for this year's conference? Well, I certainly hope that the, Online connections go smoothly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> always, I think everybody yeah. could, could agree with it's that. It's like PowerPoint at church. It'll cool. never quite, yeah. I think my biggest hope follows from what we were just talking about. I really hope that um, some people will come away with a broader sense of what activism means mm. because I have definitely learned from my work at VST that a big social change um, doesn't happen unless all sectors of the society, right, are engaged at all different levels of living. So I hope people come away with an expanded sense of activism. I hope that the interreligious conversation will give people some different vocabularies mm -hmm. for talking about what their works and aspirations mean to them. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people will meet each other and have a good time, which is the biggest challenge online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of your, one of your doctorates, I understand, is in <laughs> philosophy. Uh, you, you told us previously that you, you'd uh, negotiated an interdisciplinary doctorate with philosophy and education, but you were a philosophy professor at the University of uh, North Carolina. Am I yes, getting that correct? Charlotte. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always good when I, my notes are correct. Um, can you... Can you talk to us a little bit about what sort of relationship you see between philosophy and religion? Sure. I'll clarify that I only have one doctorate. Oh, okay. But it's in what? two fields. <laughs> <laughs> only one? <laughs> goodness. Twice the comps, but thank God only one dissertation. Uh. <laughs> oh my goodness, that makes me anxious already just yeah. thinking about that. No, you see, I survived, and you will too. <laughs> well done. But... Philosophy connected with religion. So obviously I see everything through the lens of how I experience philosophy and how mm -hmm. I experience right. religion. I think that they are both 
different paths to very similar existential questions. Mm -hmm. The way that I came to teach philosophy, once I had mastered the basic skills of teaching, the way that I came to teach philosophy was actually something of a spiritually informed Mm -hmm. way. We didn't use the concepts of a particular religious tradition, unless we were studying, of course, philosophy of religion. But I invited students to bring forward their real life experiences and some of their existential questions and to try to understand how the philosophers and philosophies we were studying could help them live into their questions. Mm -hmm. So here's a really simple example of one of the many kinds of questions and activities and courses at different levels that I developed to explore this kind of thinking. Really simple one. Very famous text in Introduction to Philosophy, Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy, Mm. which students love because it's got an autobiographical storytelling element in the first few chapters. So Descartes systematically doubts everything Um, around him. And then he finds one thing of which he can be sure. And suddenly he's able to sort of climb out of that extreme doubt. So I simply asked students year after year, what is the time in your life when you felt completely uncertain, Mm. right? That nothing around you could be relied on? What was that like And what was something that helped bring you out of that? And their answers were Mm. extraordinary. Here's a few that I particularly remember because um, with their permission, I wrote about them in an article. Uh, One student says, you know, I, I came to North Carolina and the United States as an immigrant Um, I spoke Korean and I so slowly learned English and I talked to people and they couldn't understand what I was saying. So I said stuff, I related to people, they didn't see me and I wasn't really sure that I existed anymore Mm -hmm. as I knew myself. And then I met some fellow Korean students and suddenly I was reminded, yes, we have a common language and a common culture and right? I I can hold the line here. Somebody else wrote about an experience of grief when their best friend's father died. Somebody wrote about being a fundamentalist and then being Mm. asked hard questions in another philosophy course. Mm. So I tried to make sure that philosophy was not just an abstract intellectual pursuit, but that they really used it right. in their own lives. And, and it helps to show where it's present. I mean, one of the things that that uh, I really like reading Karl Barth's theology, and, and one of the things that he mentions is that we, we all have a theology. You could put it as we all have a philosophy as well, that, you know, it's not necessarily, we don't necessarily think about it, but we have a way of making sense of the world. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I'm interested in, in how you uh, work both in like the interreligious context, but then your background in philosophy is that as we move forward in, in kind of relating to one another in the world, it's not only for, like for, for, for me, from my Christian faith, it's not only the, 
the challenge and opportunity of how I work with, partner with, and relate to people who believe different things in, in the religious context, but that for those who would say they don't have any belief or that they say, you know, they're atheists, that they're, again, going back to kind of the suspicious and fearful upbringing that, that many people have faced in different contexts, in my upbringing, kind of the atheist was like, you know, really dangerous. And why would you be atheist? Like, like people just chose to be atheist or something. Some people don't believe because they don't believe. <laughs> it's uh, and it would be a lie for them to say that they do. And then the realization uh, now that we have a lot to learn, like from people who and who don't believe, and that we're in community together, and that philosophy is asking some of these same questions that that religious religion is asking. And so, uh, and I see some of that in, in, in many people who are writing philosophy as well, right? You just, and in many philosophers, a deep respect for religion. So I just was really interested when I found out that you were, um, that that was part of your background uh, and how it would inform um, kind of where you're coming from. Do you have any particular, I mean, you mentioned Descartes and the early, but is there any, any particular authors or books that you would recommend for those who would be interested in, in looking into philosophy because I think for some people it's really daunting it's like oh, oh yeah really it feels philosophy. like this big thing that you're like I, I can't do really that. academic people do that <laughs> or whatever are there any accessible kind of things you can point us towards sure I have my favorites yes, yes that'd be please. great awesome <laughs> all right first for anyone who really wants to leap into classical philosophy like a primary text person I recommend Plato's Symposium. It's a very short dialogue. It's about love and sex, you know, topics that everyone is at least secretly interested in. (laughs) And even though the setting of the dialogue is a bunch of men sitting around a table drinking as they discuss these topics, Um, Plato also brings in the voices of women Mm. as um, holding some of the more authoritative perspectives. Mm -hmm. So it's fabulous and it's funny and there's a lot of good translations. So that's one approach. Um, A few other ways of starting. Uh, There are several um, graphic novel style introductions to um, different well-known philosophers that I recommend. They're put out by some small presses. So people might have to Google um, graphic novel introduction to Nietzsche or something like that, but you can find them. There are works of philosophy that are really applied works around particular topics of interest to people. So for example, if someone is interested in ecology or environmental philosophy, there are books by, uh, for example, just one example, David Abram, The Spell of the Sensuous. It's heavy intellectual, but it's also very beautiful. And the philosophy is not abstract. It's applied to the questions. That's a good start. Yeah. No, I know that, that um, philosophy, yeah, can be a little on the intimidating side. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, I just think it, it's been such, you know, some of the things that I've read when I consider uh, 
as a pastor parishioners or something that people can get kind of straight jacketed into only considering questions of deep meaning from their religious perspective or mm. something that they, and then I, I found that some people's faith can be informed by stepping kind of outside of that and having those questions asked in, in a different way. And then it might actually kind of strengthen the way they believe, right? That it's, and some of those are being asked in these philosophical works that are, that are just fantastic. Um, so in terms of that, I was going to ask a question about how religious we all are. Um, as someone who's well, teaching, at a, teaching at a theological school. Religious. How religious are you? Yeah. Do you, th- do you see, because one of the things that gets spoken about is that our culture is like less religious than it used to be. Um, how do you, how do you see that? Is our, is our culture just as religious as it used to be, but in different ways? How do you kind of respond to that? Well, I came of age as a philosopher in the late 80s and early 90s, and there were still many books being published asserting that, you know, the age of religion was over and secularism was rising. And this was completely obviously false if you even opened the newspaper (laughs) in the morning. (laughs) So while it may be that secularism was on the rise on the university campuses where these people taught, that's clearly not (laughs) what was happening around the world, right? Religion was on the rise partly because people were needing um, paradigms to hold what was happening. Um, People need strong communities and and religious traditions create very strong communities. And religion was mixing with politics in ways that, right, brought it up or down, (laughs) depending on how you look at it, in the public profile. So it may well be that there are statistical ways of mapping across history, right, the ups and downs of religious traditions. But as someone who like you believe, Todd, and Allison, we didn't hear what you think about this, but as someone who believes that these existential questions, mm-hmm. right, both inside ourselves and about community and the future of the planet, these questions are always present. Mm-hmm. And if you want to consider the way people are always dealing with them under the terms religion and philosophy. That's just happening all the time. Yeah. yeah. So Rabbi Laura, um, as, as we turn to, to begin wrapping up, although I, I feel reticent to, I, I don't wish to, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, keep talking. Um, <laughs> could you, could you tell us what sort of things give you hope right now? And and that could be in the context of as a, a professor or as a philosopher, just, just as a human being, or are, are there things that, that give you hope right now? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. One thing that gives me hope right now, very personal, as the parent of young adult children, who is also a family friend, and in some cases, a colleague of other young adults in their circle, I have incredible hope um, in the next generation. I have a lot of faith in them. I know that on social media, there's a fake intergenerational war 
going on or partly fake. And then there are some actual resentments. But in my own life, I don't see it. I see young people, right, going into the future with eyes wide open about economic challenges, justice challenges, environmental challenges, Mm. right? I see in Canada, a group of young people who are well aware of trauma to indigenous people and speaking of activism are trying to learn the correct ways and productive ways to be allies, right? Without repeating past mistakes. So I see a lot of very positive stuff happening in the next generation. I love hearing that. And just Thank just to you. hear you answer to say <laughs> when you ask the question and then hear yes, definitely. <laughs> like that's such, and I you know back up your. Uh, I also have two sons, twenty three and twenty one, and um, and I I share the sentiments that that you just expressed. But it's so great to hear people express it because so often it's easy to, easier to express the opposite. I think that I'm going to steal a quote that you had written down here. Is that okay yeah, if I read this? Take my David Goa quote. Um, yeah, one of our friends, <laughs> David Goa. And so we're thinking about the interreligious conference and other things. He, in do you remember what work it's in? Yeah, it's in the uh, one of his lecture series, the Christian responsibility to Muslims. Okay, so uh, David Goa speaking about uh, friendships across. Uh, religious lines says one of the things he says is spiritual friendship does not muddy the boundaries of our particular faith traditions rather drawing on the deep sources of these oceans of insight and wisdom our interconnection is illuminated in friendship heart speaks unto heart so as we close uh, can you just tell us how people can find out more about the interreligious conference thoughtful activism Uh, tell us where they go online we'll also include it but let us know The easiest way is to go to the VST website, www.vst.edu. Perfect. And by the time they go there, (laughs) on the front page, there are a list of events, and they'll find the conference there. And people, we're March 12th right now, and registration begins March 15th, correct? Correct. But but this isn't going to be out by then. Yes. So by the time we release this episode, it'll be, yeah. It'll, it'll be open. People so, can register. Go yeah. register. And we look forward to seeing you there. And thank you for, for participating in this. And, and um, every time we find out more about your work, we just are more and more encouraged. So, uh, and looking forward to reading Mouth of the Donkey as Mouth well. Mouth of the Donkey. So <laughs> thank you so much. Blessings. Thank you. Thank you both so much. 